Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us now is Caitlin Dorman, the president of Improbable Defense, the U.S. arm of the British company that is one of the world's leading developers uh, of highly realistic virtualization and gaming engines that allow hundreds of thousands of players to immerse themselves in synthetic environments, a technology in demand by the Pentagon for more accurate wargaming scenario visualization, as well as virtual synthetic training environments on a scale vast enough to allow the military to conduct not just training, but tactics uh, and operational concepts uh, developments away from prying eyes. Aside from her day job, she is also a commissioner on an Atlantic Council panel exploring how to make it easier for companies like Improbable to break into the defense space. Uh, Full disclosure, Improbable is also one of the sponsors of of, uh, that study. Uh, Caitlin, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. I know we've been talking about this for so long, and I'm glad we're making it happen. Thanks, Fago. Glad to be here. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS uh, and Safran. An absolute uh, pleasure. So first of all, um, start us off, right? Improbable falls into the category of a, a number of innovative companies, right? Rebellion comes to mind, Matreya Aerospace comes to mind, where people sort of hear their names, but aren't exactly sure what it is that they do. What is it that you guys do that others don't do that makes you a little bit special in this space? Thanks for having me on, Vago. So an Improbable we're trying to transform mission outcomes for those who are responsible for keeping us safe by building synthetic environments for training, planning, and decision support. So we enable our customers to represent the complexity of the modern operating environment. Um, the threat environment has changed drastically over the last decade. The operating environment is more um, complex. The amount of data that's available has increased to a point where it can no longer be analyzed manually. And the same goes for the number of systems and sensors that need to be integrated for a complete operational picture. And then that is compounded by the fact that our adversaries are no longer looking at only conventional means of warfare. They're looking to impact critical infrastructure. They're introducing disinformation into their operations and disrupting supply chains. So we've uh, created a new approach for the development and use of synthetic environments Um, which when I say synthetic environment, I'm talking about a virtual representation that can capture the complexity of the real world. It has data and integrated models and can simulate past, present, and future states. So what's really exciting about um, these capabilities is that we're able to support modeling and simulation applications, uh, but also to take modeling and simulation into other domains where it's not traditionally used and things like operations planning, Intel analysis and logistics. Right. I mean, it's you. You guys are looking at everything from concept development uh, and and all the all the way to uh, the logistics and as you mentioned, supply chain piece of it. You know, you sort of hit the nail on the head, right? This is a capability the Pentagon has long been interested in. Uh, you know, in in terms of being able to do concepts development, um, to be able to play out um, complex scenarios uh, in all of their dimensions, right? I mean, in a very multi-domain uh, fashion. Um, and it's increasingly referred to right as the metaverse, 
you know, one of the things that you guys do is you're able to do real-time role-playing on the commercial side of uh, things, you know, without any latency, which is, which is very important. Um, what is the state of the art in terms of where the commercial, where commercial industry is on this and where it's going, Caitlin? Uh, in order to be able to sort of shape how the Pentagon needs to think about this, because, you know, the Pentagon wants to be an adopter of these commercial technologies, but sometimes the process it uses to adopt them really are remarkably slow and end up a couple of steps behind. Where, where is commercial technology when it comes to uh, the ability to generate these kinds of environments and actually do them at scale uh, in a distributed fashion uh, with actually a pretty impressive degree of security as well? The commercial space is leading the way, um, Improbable and others. So we're looking specifically at how to get thousands of users into one virtual environment without crashing or without adding latency, which is a concern that the DoD, of course, has as well. Um, Improbable is the commercial leader in building virtual worlds with high concurrency um, and minimizing both latency and bandwidth requirements, which is again, translates well to the Pentagon because they're operating in, you know, disrupted and degraded network environments. So that piece is really important. And then another aspect of it is to look at how multiple models can work together. So when you have, um, you know, representative models of different behaviors and you want to put them together with a common data model, we have tools that um, help ensure the validity of that common data model and verify the implementation of the models that it does what you want it to do. Um, and then you already touched upon security. Actually, security is incredibly important in these commercial metaverse environments, as is high availability and being able to um, maintain and run a system without you know, kicking off thousands of users. I would say that for defense, we need to stop and think about what we're trying to accomplish. Um, DOD, in my opinion, doesn't need a military metaverse today in the same sense that commercial businesses are building metaverse experiences. But the underlying technologies can be put to work right now against challenges that we see in training and decision support and other modeling and simulation applications. So for example, there are a lot of opportunities today to use game engines for uh, rendering and integration of real-time 3D streaming. And I think DOD will need to tackle composability and interconnectedness between synthetic environments, you know, multiple um, virtual representations not just on a project by project basis, but in terms of building ecosystems, which is a challenge that um, we're dealing with in the commercial space as well, the kind of interoperability of these virtual worlds. Um, so I think this will be the foundation of future metaverse um, capabilities. Uh, and uh, I should point out that composability is, um, you know, system design dealing with the interrelationship of multiple components, right? Uh, which, which is uh, one of your uh, field's uh, terms uh, of uh, our, uh, there's a lot of talk, Caitlin, about the metaverse, right? So much so that, you know, Facebook changed its name to Meta, uh, despite consternation from many highly innovative or some highly innovative companies that were already called, or at least one highly innovative company that was called Meta. Um, what are the most breakthrough uses of the metaverse and whatnot, right? I mean, because you said it's not a one size fits all, nor a single solution, nor does the Pentagon need to be doing what commercial industry is doing, right? So what are the elements of this that actually from a national security perspective, uh, given your experience at Palantir and elsewhere, knowing you know, what the military requirement is, what is the military requirement and what does the military metaverse actually need to look like? So there are proven capabilities um, of synthetic environments and our platform, which is called Skyroll today, 
Um, and some of those that I, where I see the applicability of metaverse technologies are um, the scalability and accessibility of training solutions. So the idea that you wanna use um, a collective training, a virtual collective training to train like a whole brigade of soldiers together um, certainly requires scale um, that surpasses anything we see today um, in the DOD. Another example would be enabling teams of experts to make faster, more informed decisions um, through improved situational awareness, uh, collaboration, and um, basically experiments that are backed by simulation so that they can experiment with different multiple courses of action in order to see what the outcome would be. And then they can make a recommendation about how to, how to move forward. And I think one particular aspect is current approaches to these problems today aren't fast enough to evolve with a threat environment. Um, our platform enables training um, and, and the decision support for hyper-complex threat environments and decisions that need to be made quickly and the underlying environment is constantly changing. Let me uh, pull on that uh, thread a little bit. So when I was at your offices, you guys showed me a visualization of a, of a missile strike and where, um, you know, how once an alarm goes off, people on the street, how quickly they can get to shelters and all of that. Um, and, and actually, there are many people who get hung up on the accuracy of the buildings and can the building, you know, can the buildings be more realistic and why are these wireframes without sometimes recognizing that actually the visualization of it is less important than the data generated, right? You guys, the end, you know, this is a, the visualization is a byproduct of the engine doing its work and showing you what the outcome sets are going to be, right? What your casualty exposure would be or, or what have you. Um, do, how do we need to think differently? Because sometimes folks, even in the field, tend to get sort of distracted by that which doesn't matter as opposed to that which is critically important. It's the data you're generating that's important, not necessarily, necessarily how that element of it is visualized, right? How do we need to think about what the technology can give us not to end up looking for the wrong things from it, if, if you get my meaning? Yes, absolutely. So I'll say two things. Um, one is on the visualization front, and then another one would be on the fidelity front, which are closer related. But I would say the visualization, you know, its purpose is to quickly and accurately portray a whole lot of information to a human who interacts with data in a certain way and understands it in a certain way. So we design these user interfaces um, you know, with our users through a user-centered design process in order to get them information quickly that they can use for decision-making. Um, but the, you know, the richness of that visualization, um, the, the immersiveness of it is only important to the extent that that's what they need. So right. I guess to give you an example, if you're training, you really want the environment to feel realistic enough that you believe that your actions have an impact and you're making good decisions, you know, you're not just playing a game, but if you're doing more analytical um, right. decision making, then the visualization is less important. So that's definitely a consideration that we take when we work on these problems. And then the other piece is fidelity. So I kind of feel the same way about fidelity where you um, could have high fidelity models of every single thing in your environment. If you're um, simulating a multi-domain operation, then, you know, you've got tons of different models and even physics-based models that you need to integrate. 
But the question that we always ask is, okay, where does the fidelity matter? And where are you going to get the most bang for your buck? Because this simulation actually has to run. Someone's got to pay the cloud costs. It's got to be able to move across the network. Um, and while our technology offers a lot of unique things in terms of network optimization and um, being able to run in distributed integrated environments, that, you know, that uh, infrastructure still has to be there. So don't, you know, make it so high fidelity in every single aspect that you won't be able to run it. You know, we really have to look at what matters the most for the type of use case that you're considering. Um, let me take you, and, and I thought it was interesting, right? I mean, there's a sense that the cloud is free, except for all the people who are the gatekeepers to the cloud who make a lot of money. No offense, guys uh, and gals uh, on uh, on that, right? But it's it's an important consideration when when people are just like, oh, you know, it doesn't matter how, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all on the cloud. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, this, right? The, the challenge of interconnecting Right, because one of the things you guys can do is actually interconnect a lot of different people on a lot of different platforms as well, right? Uh, and one of the big challenges the Pentagon has, whether it's from a joint all domain command and control perspective or it's from a training perspective is, you know, how can you get everybody in a place in the cloud uh, to be able to interoperate, whether it's somebody who's doing infantry training, you know, as you said, at a brigade level, whether it's somebody on a warship at sea or somebody who's flying a jet somewhere, or actually sitting in a simulator somewhere and, and actually doing a combat mission uh, environment. Talk to us about the challenges associated and the opportunities to interconnect the universe we already have, because actually starting from scratch would be prohibitively expensive. Yes, and this gets into distributed environments and a whole strategy around uh, edge computing and how you utilize your network. But I think any solution that's running in the manner that you're talking about absolutely has to be flexible. We have to be able to run it um, you know, from uh, on-premise as well as in the cloud, make it accessible at the edge. And you need technologies and networks that are able to be interconnected and kind of pull everything back together, adjudicate it, especially with training. You need to make sure that everyone who's participating in this real-time virtual training is getting the same information at the same time, which tends to be one of the uh, real challenges with um, traditional solutions um, that because there's so much traffic flowing over the network in these big distributed simulations um, that people aren't getting the same information at the same time. And so it kind of makes it an unfair fight. And at the very worst, it's, uh, you know, negative training that will, that will teach our um, warfighters the wrong behavior. So that's of critical importance. And Improbable has um, de developed some innovations in that space as part of our both gaming and um, metaverse work. Um, when it comes to these um, massively multiplayer online games, they face um, somewhat similar challenges in that you have, you know, tens of thousands of people who are playing from around the world and often they'll be geographically grouped into servers, but sometimes you have people on opposite sides of the world who want to play in the same session together. And so um, we've developed some, um, you know, networking approaches that um, help reduce latency to address that exact problem. Um, let me ask you one last uh, question, and you know, I know you're studying this problem uh, for the Atlantic Council uh, as well as living it, uh, right? Um, how do you guys get to get from where you guys are to where you guys want to be, right? I mean, obviously, there's an important commercial component to that, uh, but also could be doing this for the benefit of the DOD as well. And traversing this sort of valley of death, for lack of a better word, has always historically been a challenge. 
what, you know, is the environment different than it used to be for companies like you guys, right? I mean, the Pentagon's been working, uh, you know, as everybody remembers Ash Carter's uh, passing as America's 25th defense secretary and his drive uh, to bring new entrants into the defense business. The reality of it is, it's, is, is that it's still a challenge, right? Where are you in your ability to do that transition? And what are the changes that might be necessary in order to help companies like you guys who do have a lot of proprietary interest in commercial technology from being able to actually break into the defense space um, you know, on, on your own and in your own right, uh, as opposed to a smaller player or somebody who, who is forced to partner with somebody uh, potentially in order to try to make that happen? At a high level, we've done this so far through partnering with champions who see the need for this technology and have a particular mission need that we're able to address. And that's always where we start. And then we partner in order to, um, you know, do a prototype and um, show, show how quickly we can compose one of these synthetic environments and how we can evolve it as their requirements change. And that goes a long way. So I think that speaks to one of my recommendations, which is that, um, you know, in terms of bigger programs and crossing the valley of death, that it is more merit-based, that it's um, more based on performance and that companies that have unique capabilities that they can demonstrate today have an opportunity and a head start on um, larger companies that may be able to build something given enough time um, would pass during the, uh, during the RFP and proposal uh, process. So that would be one aspect of it. The other thing that I would say is that, you know, through being part of Improbable, we're, we're able to continue leveraging innovative technology and approaches. Um, even things like how we manage high availability systems and how we can minimize latency in these really immersive experiences. And a benefit that our customers get is um, working with a VC-backed company like ourselves, we're able to invest significant private capital and R&D, and we're ahead of the government's requirement cycle. So that speed and that advantage, um, I I think that um, the DOD has a lot of um, authorities that can be used to work with companies like us, um, not, you know, not just SBIRs, but, um, you know, things like OTAs, other types of commercial solution offerings and things like that. But it seems to me that the, um, there needs to be more uh, informing and educating about successful uh, use cases or success, success stories of those types of authorities. Um, so that the workforce understands um, that that kind of risk-taking approach and, and moving quickly approach is supported and uh, can be successful and see see a blueprint for those things. And just before we go, uh, Caitlin, uh, you guys also now have a quarterly newsletter uh, for those people desperately interested in, in goings-on in the metaverse. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and where people can go to subscribe. We have a new military metaverse um, newsletter. It's basically a roundup of everything that's going on in the synthetic space and the modeling and simulation space that are contributing towards the building of the military metaverse, as well as uh, relevant news from the commercial space. And you can go to our website, which is defense.improbable.io to sign up. Thanks very much again. Best of luck, Fairwinds following seas, uh, and look forward to having you on uh, in the spring, if not sooner, uh, to talk about a subject that's absolutely uh, both fascinating and absolutely critical, especially, you know, as we have less money for training and, you know, to, for training time and flying time and the like. Uh, this is kind of a technology that could make a rather dramatic difference in our 
preparedness and, and how we think about the future and concept development. So thanks so very much again, Caitlin. Thanks for having me, Vago.